Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And we're shifting gears once again here. We just wrapped up our tournament on the most interesting person in history, which in itself was kind of a wrap-up of our world history project where we went through world history in chronological order, a hundred and some movies at a time, or sorry, one movie at a time, 120-some movies, whatever it was. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, as I just told Logan uh, before we started recording, I got back from a track meet last night at like 2.30 in the morning, so I am... uh, I uh, I could be better. I could be better. <laughs> and, and then Logan said he was actually prepared for a different episode. So we uh we are gonna just uh, wing it here, and uh, we're gonna have some fun though. So obviously this is history and film. So we really haven't spent much time talking about television and historically driven television. And I thought the Crown would be a great place to start, given my love for the. If nothing else, the concept of the English monarchy, I've never been a big one like, oh, let's go watch Will and Kate's marriage ceremony. I'm like, I don't care about that stuff. It's more just like the history of it and the story behind the legacy of everything building up to where we're at now. And I just found the, find the crown fascinating. And you got into it a little later, right? Logan, you said your your wife had watched it and then you kind of caught up with it yeah, after my, the fact? My wife had watched like the first season, season and a half-ish, and then I didn't start watching it until I think season three was already out. So I had to like catch up and watch seasons one and two. And then by the time I got to like the end of season three, because it, it took me a while, um, and then the fourth season was out. So that is the most recent one. Maybe by the time this is released, there will be a fifth season. I, I don't. I haven't really been paying attention to release dates on that. But yeah, it looks like they're. So we are again. We record everything ridiculously far ahead of time with the idea that you know we figure if we're talking historical stuff, hopefully too much doesn't change, which also though of course leads <laughs> to our running joke of at time of recording. But right. So we are recording this, you know, full disclosure in May of 2021, and I don't think this comes out for. Uh, about 10 months but by so they're supposed to start recording season five in july of 2021 here and then and then sometime in 2022 is when season five is going to come out so we will throw in a season five discussion as that comes out and that'll almost be better in some ways because we will be able to record that closer to be relevant well well, or close well no that but also closer to when we actually watch it i I haven't seen season one of the crown in a couple years (laughs) Uh, oh, that's tr- that's a good point. Because and for, I feel like it's been a long time for me, and it's probably only been well, yeah, it's it's been probably about a year. Right, but. right. I probably watched it not long after it was out. So I probably it might, it might have been four years ago that I watched it. If it came out in 2016, yeah. I might have watched it in 2017 because I think I watched season one before season two was out. I'm not exactly sure. I, I I know I was always interested in watching it because it's right up my alley, but. I don't know if I got to it right away, just because you're always kind of juggling other shows and catching up with other things. But uh, it was high on my priority list. And accuracy aside, and that's kind of something we're going to get into here too. Is you know, 
you hear a lot of uh, Brits kind of dogging on Americans thinking it's all historical and stuff. And at the end of the day, I mean, bullet point wise, everything seems to be hitting the bullet points. And I get that you're making up conversations behind the scenes, but that's like, I know it's a TV show, but all that aside, it's just great filmmaking, television making. It's just great acting, great writing about something that on its face seems like it would be so boring. And maybe to some people it is boring, but the performances are so good. And I think the scripts are so well structured that I think it's one of the best shows on board on, on, on TV. I think that's my favorite part is the performances. Oh yeah. They're so good at everyone that they get. Even the people that I've like never heard of before, like, uh, like the kid who plays Prince Charles. Oh yeah. In seasons yeah. three and four, I had never seen him in anything else. And he, killed it and i don't know who their casting person is but they get people that look exactly like the people <laughs> that they're gonna play I, I don't know if it's, if that's casting or makeup or or a little bit of both but like man it's so good and so i i'm i'm a big fan of claire foy but big shouts to olivia coleman for oh my gosh disappearing into the role right like right. i've seen her in stuff before um <laughs> by in in my mind olivia coleman is like the silly goofy police lady from hot fuzz because that was the first thing that I ever Whoa, heard. she's in that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, like, to, like, that's such a huge rage to go from that to playing the queen. And she's just like, yeah, like, almost like a Gary Oldman, just chameleon disappearing into the role. No, and I, and I talked about that on our, uh, on Trackners, when we were going over the best movies of the year, and she's in The Father with Anthony Hopkins. And I don't understand how it, took her this long to become to kind of break out i mean she does have an oscar or two now or whatever it is but only like the last couple years have i kind of come to know who she was i didn't know she was in hot fuzz obviously she's been working for a while but she is so so good she's quickly become one of my favorite actors just period because i think like to your point she just is so good at everything and just disappears she's she's so good that she's not even in season one of The Crown, which is what we're supposed to be talking about. Right? Like, <laughs> gushing, <laughs> gushing over Olivia Coleman. <laughs> she doesn't even come until season three. <laughs> hey, I'll do a special episode on Olivia Coleman. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. Let's get back on track here. Um, so now again, to be fair, so just kind of based on our own production timeline here, you could easily justify doing at least a full episode of our podcast on each individual episode of the crown. And yeah. we're just not going to do that. I mean, we would love to do that. No. I guess maybe we could do that. Should we do that? But no, uh, we're not going to do that because we're kind of just looking at broader strokes here. We're going to talk about all of just season one and Olivia Coleman here today. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so it won't be a beat by beat thing. We're not even necessarily looking at, too close of you know all the little details they got right or wrong i'm sure there are other podcasts that are going to do a better job of that we're more looking at this as a launching point to discuss some of the characters and topics that come up in season one of the crown yeah i i uh i haven't looked to see if this is true but i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that there are probably multiple podcasts that go granular episode by episode for the crown oh right there's gotta right. be at least one <laughs> if not if not hundreds if not <laughs> hey if it, legit if not let us know and we'll do it <laughs> but yeah yeah true. i'd be happy to reset rewatch season one of the crown go episode by episode uh but again that's just not what we're gonna we're gonna do here today so 
I kind of just jotted down a few kind of notes. We can maybe kind of look at an episode at a time as a launching point and maybe just kind of spend a few minutes, you know, using each uh, of the 10 episodes in season one as, as a launching point to talk about some other things. So, and again, I do love the structure, how they kind of jump back and forth throughout the first few episodes. So the presence, and I'm doing air quotes of the show, you know, the, with the show we're given, it does kind of start, I don't even have the year written down, but we do have a young princess elizabeth her father george the sixth is still the king and he gets i think in the first episode is when we see him get a terminal cancer diagnosis he's basically a chain smoker and has been for many years and he gets a terminal diagnosis so it's a lot about him setting up the world of all the advisors and parliament and everybody who kind of is behind the scenes of running how they run the british monarchy in a constitutional monarchy system with you know parliament and all that knowing that he's going to die at some point i think they even say it's going to be years it might be years but it's more likely months so he needs to prepare his eldest daughter to be ready when it's her turn to take the crown and that's and so it's about elizabeth is definitely the focus but we do see a lot of things going on when she's not around yeah and what one thing that was interesting that they kind of focused on a lot is how she didn't really want to be queen and it was kind of like, and I don't know if this is true in, in real life, but kind of felt that it was unfair that she had to be, which when you think about it is kind of like a, like she wasn't necessarily supposed to be because her dad's older brother was king and abdicated because he wanted to marry a American divorcee. So he, he had to abdicate the throne if he wanted to continue the the marriage. And so he did. And then, yeah, Elizabeth's dad was then king which made her in line to be queen but even then between her and margaret margaret actually really liked the spotlight liked all the you know the ceremonial stuff really probably would have really thrived <laughs> as a as a queen and really wanted it but it wasn't meant to be what she wasn't she just wasn't born in in the right order yes and, and all that's interesting they go into go into that quite a bit in the show it, from different angles from the time they're little and and that honestly though would be one of the things where i wonder to what extent i mean i do understand elizabeth as the kind of reluctant monarch who just kind of feels it's a duty that she has to the country and i do think firmly believes that but i also don't know to what extent like were her and margaret actually trying to make legit moves to put margaret ahead of her or is that more just kind of like something that the Maybe there's a small sliver of truth to that, and that's something that a television show can latch onto well, and beef up. Yeah, and, and when they show that in the show, they're like, what, 11 or 12 years old when they do that? Well, it kind of comes back up later, I feel like, too. But yes, yes, that was kind of the first uh, first indicator we see of it. Oh, did it did it come back up later? I, I honestly I think remember. they were flashing back and forth between when they, they were kind of like their contemporary point where not necessarily like full-on make me monarch, but seriously, like give me a lot more to do, and I would we all wish I was the monarch, but yeah. Oh, right, okay. Um, and hey, here's a, here's a, and then of course the actress that plays princess margaret in season one which is relevant is vanessa kirby who though i didn't see it was nominated mm-hmm. for an oscar for pieces of a woman this year and I, i've heard basically yeah. the movie's not great but she is amazing in it i heard the same thing and uh that was yeah a movie that came out this year that i didn't see even though it was on netflix and i had no excuse not to <laughs> right and and, and it, 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 the performances in general of course she's just so dropped dead gorgeous too but also in just like in just like a stunning way like She's just mesmerizing on screen, mm-hmm. and specifically probably as Princess Margaret here, but just every time she's on screen, I'm just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, so what I was going to say, though, too. So, yes, the family is basically super upset with George VI, elder brother who abdicated uh, Edward VIII, who becomes, like, uh, actually, once he's no longer king, they demote him to uh, Duke of... Hoping I'd remember by the time I got there. Where is it at? Where is it at? Windsor. Oh, Duke of Windsor. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, once he was no longer king, he became Duke of Windsor officially. So he still had a royalish title, but was no longer king. But yeah, so the family's so mad because they see it basically as one of the triggering things that led to George VI's poor health. It made him smoke more. It made him stress more. And so basically the fact that he was never meant to be king and his brother's abdication forces him on the throne led to his early death and both George VI's wife and his daughters, Elizabeth and Margaret, and then even their mother, Edward the uh, Edward VIII and George VI's mother, are all just upset that he basically drove George VI to an early, early grave. And I guess I get that part of it, but and there is definitely something to that. But at the same time, I'm like, one, then just let him marry who he wants to marry and stay on the throne. I mean, yeah. get rid of all that stuff. And then the flip side is, I was also looking, too, in a world where George, sorry, in the world where Edward VIII never abdicates, by my calculation... Elizabeth still becomes queen in 1972 upon his death because Edward VIII had no children. Right. So right. even if he stays on the throne, Elizabeth still takes the takes the throne. Right, because it, after he died, it goes to it. It goes up and over, like or to his back up to their father, to his eldest, the next eldest, to that line, which is Elizabeth. Right. Yeah. So Elizabeth. So she still would have been queen. So that that's why I right. thought the show kind of is like is almost like uh, forgetting to even kind of point out. Now, I guess they wouldn't know it at the time of the show, though, because, I mean, yeah. yeah. And also, maybe is the pressure on King Edward then, like, way higher to try and sire an heir if he is king, whereas maybe when he abdicates, he's like, why bother? Well, I guess I didn't know, too. Like, I mean, he basically, I'm saying a scenario where he stays on the throne because he, oh, yes, I guess it depends on if you're saying he eschews Wallace Simpson in order to marry someone more suitable. I was seeing it more as they allow him to marry Wallace Simpson, and then I didn't know if they chose not to have kids or if they just weren't able to have kids. And I'd never heard oh, yeah, one way or another on that. So, yeah, you're right. I guess it depends on the scenarios there. So in a scenario where he did get rid of Wallace Simpson to stay on the throne, you're right. He would probably make a more allowed marriage or politically advantageous marriage and then that could result in a whole different timeline yeah crazy how those uh the real effects of all that which again is part of what fascinates me uh about all this in, in the first place also you mentioned king george's wife who in the show is the queen mother yes and uh she's the worst in the show oh i hated that character really so really oh god yeah i don't again i don't know how how historically accurate any of that stuff is but she just was so overbearing and horrible and every time she was on screen i was just like oh god she sucks <laughs> yeah and i guess I, I didn't have a big problem with her i guess i mean yes I'm, i think i probably surprised, surprised the same annoyances in just that they're they're so concerned with appearances and tradition not realizing that in many ways the country is moving on beyond those things and in, and in theory that's kind of a big theme of the show in general is that the monarchy is stuck in the past and of course there's the whole collapse of the british empire post-world war ii and i think you know with the last couple of decades we've kind of seen that as they make some of these changes the public's on board and almost embraces them more if they allow themselves to be human and people don't have an issue with kate being a quote commoner or uh harry marion uh a divorced american and now he they didn't kind of remove themselves from the royal stuff but they didn't have to and so anyway i think they could have made these changes much earlier 
and it and the country yeah. would have been fine with it. <laughs> Maybe the country would be fine with not having a monarchy altogether. <laughs> to be honest, no, you know, and, and that's and, and honestly, hey, and that's a debate worth having too. And uh, we, we're going to try to obviously arrange a conversation here. With, yeah, yeah. I was going to say let's let's uh, let's save that for a possible later episode. Yes, yes, but yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about. Just briefly, because I don't have, a, still don't have a great grasp of it, the, the concept of the Commonwealth. So in episode two, George the Sixth is, you know, still dealing with his health stuff, and uh, Elizabeth and Prince Philip, who, of course, I mean, he's not Prince Philip yet because she's not the monarch yet. Well, that gets complicated too because he was actually born a prince, and I do want to get into that as well. Um, <laughs> they're kind of just traveling the Commonwealth, and they're specifically hanging out right. in uh, Kenya, I think, when they get word that George the Sixth has died. So, but the Commonwealth in general is something I've always kind of heard of. They, you know, you know, they all see the, you know, the Commonwealth Games is almost like their little version of the Olympics. And right. basically, the the key thing to know because it, it is basically a lot of countries and places that used to be part of the British Empire, but they still consider themselves part of the Commonwealth. But I thought the key thing to note, if you look at like the Commonwealth of Nations Wikipedia page, quote: Member states have no legal obligations to one another. So right. it really is almost just like a fraternity, the way I saw it. It's like a yeah, it's like it's a frat of, of countries, like a who, bunch yeah. of countries that say, "Oh, we have this shared history that is the British Empire," and so we do still have this like amount, certain amount of deference to the monarchy and to the the British government, but not in like a formal way where we're beholden to them or where we pay taxes to them or anything. They don't have any control over us, like. If any one of those countries wanted, like, if the queen was going to land, and they could just be like, no, like, get out of here, you know. Right, right. They would 100% be within their right to do that. Right. But yeah, th- just basically think, like, think of the countries that have the Union Jack on their flag still. Like, that's what, which isn't necessarily all, because a bunch of them don't have the Union Jack, and also there's <laughs> flags that have the Union Jack that aren't part of the British Commonwealth, like Hawaii. Um, but Hawaii yeah, has a Union Jack? On their flag, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I missed that somehow. <laughs> Darn you! Is that James Cook doing all that stuff? Uh, I actually, I, I don't know why Hawaii has a Union Jack on their flag. Okay, <laughs> I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has something to do with. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Cap, old, old Captain Cook just going around. Uh, yeah, maybe discovering all the specific stuff. We get and they, they always kind of cut back and forth. I do think they handled it well, like I said. So they start with George VI on the throne. Episode two, he dies, but then they cut back in episode three and start looking at Edward the Third, or sorry, Edward the Eighth, more closely and the abdication and how the, that's where we kind of start to see how the family's upset with him. Kind of stuff we already talked about there. Well, so again, we don't have to get much into this, but there's a big issue in season one is Princess Margaret's relationship with one Peter Townsend, uh, not the musician <laughs> <He's in> right. the- <laughs> <laughs> but again that deals with a lot of stuff that, that's actually a big one too it's, it, it's almost what it's almost so frustrating when they saw the distress that was caused to the monarchy in the country by not allowing edward the eighth to marry who he wanted to marry and then and they kept making the same they keep making the same mistake yeah. i mean and we'll get to it in later seasons with with charles, charles and yep. right, and now here with margaret she just like, she I don't know. It's not. It's not a fleeting thing for her. This seems, again, at least how the show presents it. This is more than anyone else who she wants to marry and has should have every right to marry this guy. But basically, it's like, oh, but he's divorced. So sorry. And yeah, it's all. A lot of this has to do, and actually, the reason for the abdication in the first place, or how that wasn't a suitable marriage for him to marry a divorced woman, is because the monarch of England is also officially the head of the Church of England. 
they can't basically openly participate in arrangements that go against the church's teaching. So that is actually right. what's at the root of a lot of this and why these rules are in place. So Margaret basically was too close to in line for the throne to be able to marry someone that they're that the Church of England didn't allow. But wasn't there a thing, though, where they said, like, it was different because his wife divorced him, so he was, like, quote-unquote blameless in the divorce? Like, he wasn't like, oh, I'm going to divorce my wife to marry my Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Like, my wife, left, my wife left me, there's nothing I can do about it kind of thing. Which, obviously, his wife left him because he was, like, a workaholic <laughs> and was never home and was, like, fucking Princess Margaret all the time. <laughs> Uh, so he's not blameless, but like legally, she was the one who filed for the divorce and left him. So he was like kind of in the clear. Uh, maybe I, I get confused too because there is something too. Like basically, if you're under 25 and in the in in the line of succession, you have to get the monarch's approval for a marriage until at least until you're 25. So then they're trying to stall it out until she's 25. Which that's stupid too. That doesn't make any sense. No, right, right. What a dumb rule. Although actually, let's let's jump back to the marriage thing. So like. I was looking a little bit. Did you? I don't know if you had any time to look at the history of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip's relationship. So basically, kind of family friends. Aren't they also like third cousins? Eh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so honestly, the reason that doesn't bother me is we've talked about it a million times before on here. Everyone's closer, more closely related than they think. And yeah, that's true. just because yeah. they can draw more lines to it, it it's it, yeah. we're all descended from first cousins at some point. Yeah. Like every one of you listening to this, I'm going to say that's the history and film guarantee. You are the descendants <laughs> of a of first cousins who uh, had children. Yeah. I guarantee it. In your family tree somewhere, there is, yeah, there's like an uncle and a, you know, whatever, an uncle and a father, grandfather who are the same Person. guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Sorry. It happened. Get over it. <laughs> so, uh, but no, they were like, okay, yeah, so family friends slash family. Um, but no, like, so like, so he's five years older, which isn't a big deal, except that like he knew her since she was like eight. And when he was, like, 18 and she was 13, he started, like, writing her letters and stuff. And again, I don't think there was anything romantic or untoward at that time. They were, I think they were just friends. But then basically, like, the moment she turns 18, he's like, yeah, dude, can I marry your daughter? And, yeah, I mean, it's, again, they're five years apart. It could be worse. Definitely was worth hundreds of, worse hundreds of years ago. But it's just kind of something that doesn't really get talked about, I feel like. And uh, so... I wanted to look more into, because I was kind of fascinated by the Prince Philip stuff. When, of course, he actually just recently passed away at time of recording here. But he's always just kind of this stone face you never hear or see much from. You don't even, you don't even hear or see from the Queen herself much. So that was kind of why the show is nice, seen yeah. behind the scenes, too. But he was always just kind of this stern-faced person. And so it was kind of fascinating getting to see a version again it's a tv show a version of who this person might be behind the scenes but the, how that also still meshes with the persona we see presented to us in in the media and that he is yeah. maybe a little uh, kind of an, a thrill seeker and ambitious who ultimately then has to submit to his monarch wife and his issues with dealing with that dynamic where he's kind of traditional and feels like you know the man is in charge of the family yet my Wife is literally my queen. Yeah, that I thought that that was kind of a that was actually an interesting like a lot of the drama, interpersonal, you know, romantic drama stuff. I, I can take it or leave it. It's not really my thing. 
and there's a lot of it in the show. But the stuff with Prince Philip and the Queen and their relationship, I thought was really super interesting because it is it is unique. No one else in the world is dealing with those relationship issues. <laughs> like, there's there. How is who's he supposed to talk to to like to like get advice? You, oh right, who who else is going through this? Literally, no one to talk to to get advice from that's been there because that's it. Like, she's the queen, and you're you're her husband. Right, like, that's right. He, you, and, yeah, there's he, no handbook. He can't talk to Queen Victoria's husband or anything like that. Right, right, right. Exactly. That's yeah. not really how it works. <laughs> yeah. So he was born. Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark. And that's what I kind of found mm-hmm. interesting. They do kind of hint about these little things. And we meet his, I think, is it his mother? Who's like the old uh, the old nun we meet at one yeah. point in season one. Yeah. And that's kind of fascinating. And so I was looking into the history because they talk about, basically, he was like, exile is not the right word. Well, actually, no, exile is the right word. So his family, when he was little, was literally exiled from Greece. And so I was trying to figure yeah. out... How that all broke down. So he was born on Corfu, you know, an island off the coast of Greece. Yeah, he brings it up multiple times how he had to, like, escape in a crate. Exactly, yeah. He had yeah. family members that were killed. No, that's that seems legit. So um, I don't know the years here, but there was a, uh, a war between Greece and Turkey, and it went bad for Greece. So the royal family was not super popular because they're in this war that's not going well. And so... Right. The king was blamed for the defeat and forced to abdicate. Then the new military government that's kind of taken over after the abdication forces the family out of the country. And what what year was this? Uh, okay, he was forced to abdicate in 1922. He's a little little kid. He's like five. Yeah. Oh, okay, so it's it's post World War One. Is the Ottoman Empire even still a thing, or is this just Turkey now? Uh, we're post World War One, so the Ottoman Empire should be gone. So this is just Turkey right. now. And actually, I say five. No, he was like little, little, because he he was just almost a hundred. This is nineteen twenty-two, so he was basically one year old yeah. when his family's uh, forced out of Greece. Right. And he, and he's also tied to the Danish monarchy because you know again all these monarchs all throughout Europe still are kind of marrying. Well, I guess maybe until the last twenty years here, they're all kind of marrying other royals from around the continent. Right, which is something that we've talked about before in when we talk about like uh, Cardinal Richelieu and his conflict against the Habsburgs who were like ruled in Germany and in Spain, but they weren't really German or Spanish. They were just a, like a big, rich monarchy family that controlled a lot of a lot of Europe. So it's kind of the like he's not Greek necessarily or Danish, right? He's oh, like, right, like right. ethnically. But he is royal, yeah, because of how his family was connected and married. Right. I think there is probably some Greek blood there, but then it is, uh, his mom was actually from uh, Germany, I think. And then so the naming thing is also something that, frankly, still kind of confuses me. It's complicated on multiple levels. So we talk about all the, the houses. You know, you think back to the Stuart monarchs. That was because you go to the Scottish monarchs after Queen Elizabeth I died. And so you have this new house, quote unquote, that now is taking the throne, even though they're all related. So when you had the Hanoverian shift after Queen Anne died and you had all the Hanoverian kings, we basically are still in a direct line from all of them. We haven't had to backtrack too big from the Hanoverians. But we shift away from the Hanoverians. It's tricky, too, because you kind of go, 
when you have a queen instead of a king, there's kind of a tradition of using the husband's name as the house. Which is a, that is kind of a point of uh, contention. conflict in the yeah. show between Philip and Elizabeth is because he kind of thinks that, oh, this is going to, she's going to be like Queen Elizabeth Mountbatten. You know, that was like a big deal to Lord Mountbatten was that his house's name was going to be like the name of the royal family. Right. But then Elizabeth said, no, I'm going to be, it's going to be Windsor. Yes. And so that was, a, yeah, definitely a big debate. And even, but even the term Mountbatten is basically the Anglicization of Battenberg because, again, they're trying to get away oh. from this in the World War One, World War Two era. It wasn't a good, be, right. You don't want to be too German. Not a good look. Right. Yeah. Right, so there's also, and they also get into like the Saxe-Coburg thing, so again, I'm trying to pull it up, and again, I I just can't, brain broke, can't find internet things. <laughs> so you kind of go from Hanover, Hanover to Saxe-Coburg or whatever to possibly Mountbatten, but instead Windsor, and so basically they're using Elizabeth's family instead of Philip's family as kind of just uh, a compromise, so to speak, I guess. Yeah, so actually, it was tricky, too, is basically when you're in line for the throne, it's almost like you lose your last name, and the idea is that, like, Queen Elizabeth needs no last name. She's Queen Elizabeth. But then right. if you're far enough removed in the line of succession, you start to kind of need a surname to function in normal society. So in 1960, and of course, this is after season one, they basically decided that if you don't have a royal title, that your surname should be a hyphenated Mountbatten Windsor. Problem is the ones in the news are the ones that are more in direct line. But if you went to like say Prince Andrew's grandkids or whatever, they'd be like Mountbatten Windsors or something like that, Um, as as like their what the crown would prefer their surname to be, I guess. And that was something that's like uh, I thought was kind of an interesting cultural thing, where you know here in the United States, it's like more respectful, I guess. Like you, you would never refer to your like one of your teachers, like as their first name. Oh, we gotcha. Right. So, like you would, you know, you would say like Mister whatever the last name is or Mrs. whatever the last name is. Whereas, like with the royal family, it's like Prince Philip, Prince Charles, Queen Elizabeth, like first names only. It, no, you're right, and it's I guess that's to do with like the the title is so powerful that right. that's it's yeah. the Queen. Which one? Right. Well, Queen Elizabeth. Right. Or. And and even even when they are referring to them as like their full name, it's you know like Charles, Prince of Wales, no last name. Right, right. Yeah, that makes me think of a story that oh I forget which scientist it was, but we'll say Edison, even though I don't want to give him more credit than is due. Uh, in with, anyway, that that's a, the Edison can of worms, but we'll say it was Edison yeah. for sake of argument here. That whatever invention was worth talking about it at the time. And the king or queen of England at the time, I think it was actually king at the time, whatever the story was. But anyway, they're sending him a letter of congratulations. So they write on the letter that they send across the Atlantic, Thomas Edison, the United States, and just send it off with the, oh. <laughs> with the, with the idea being that that's enough to, to get right. it there. And that, and that Edison, and again, I don't think it was actually Edison, but I can't think of who it actually was, replies, King Edward, the world. And just sends it, <laughs> sends it back. But yeah, just the idea nice. that you, when you're high enough of high enough renown, everyone just knows who and where you are, and very little information is needed, like a surname, right. to clarify who you're talking about. Yeah. Even though there's queens all around the country, or sorry, even though there's queens all around the world, 
we just say the queen. Right. When you say the queen, every, everyone knows who you're talking about. Yep. Most people are picturing Queen Elizabeth II if you just say the queen. Sorry, other countries with monarchs. <laughs> and then I, the show kind of does a good job, too, of bouncing back and forth between, again, the personal behind-the-scenes drama of what goes into daily life and the personal relationships of the royal family, but then also hitting these milestones in British history that are worth addressing, even though they don't necessarily inform the overall plot of the family dynamics. So uh, episode four is the great smog of 1952, which was just kind of this... I had never heard of before. No, right, right. I mean, it kind of a reason for us to, but man, this is crazy. Like, basically, it was just a perfect storm of a lot of use of coal in both homes and factories, and the weather just basically stalled out. So it's just sitting, and just London is just sitting in this stew of pollution that's so thick you can hardly see, and it was so potent that, like, 4,000 people died, like, during it. During this four-day yeah. smog that just sat on the city. Oh. It just killed thousands of people. And and wasn't that a kind of... Uh, so, watching it in 2020 was different because watching it when it came out, it's almost like a creepy foreshadowing of COVID-19. Oh, interesting. Because the doctors are saying, like, hey, there's, like, nothing we can actually do. They're saying like, oh, we're we're just giving these people like masks and stuff. Like, oh, well, are the masks helping? Like, no, like it's not going to do actually anything. But you know, it's keeping people calm, type of thing. Wow. It was just I, I don't know. There there was a lot of parallels with like seeing all the people in the hospitals and stuff with all these be- breathing problems, or like the girl that has the basically like an asthma attack in the show. Like the commoner has to go to the hospital. She's going there. Everyone's all wearing the masks and everything, and it's just this like pandemonium overflowing hospitals. And this was, like, yeah, years before COVID-19. Right. That's crazy, because I I watched it before the pandemic, so I didn't have to... I didn't have that context when I when I watched that episode. Yeah. That's crazy. I, yeah, I didn't even think about that. And just uh, how Churchill is being so stubborn about just calling it, it's a fog, ma'am. <laughs> like, it will right. lift. Like, it's a fog that's killing people. Well, that's something that we haven't even, we haven't even brought up, is uh, Winston Churchill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which uh, we've talked extensively about before, but not about John Lithgow as Winston Churchill, who does a really, really good job. Oh, he's so good. And I feel like it's somehow maybe appropriate having an American, a good American actor play Churchill. You see it go the other way a lot of times where Brits will play the Americans and often Americans Mm -hmm. aren't as good at playing Brits, but also Churchill was half American. You know, his mom was American. And uh, yeah, Lithgow does a really, really... Good job. Yeah, I think he got the uh, the the voice is really good. The vocal quality, his kind of like body posture. He's a again another one just like Olivia Coleman, where like a lot of times if you're if you're watching something with John Lithgow, it's like oh that's John Lithgow. But in this show, it's like oh that's Winston Churchill. Like he just disappears into the role. That is interesting too. Like to think about. You know, Winston Churchill is this huge, like, larger-than-life world leader figure that you you learn about when you learn about, uh, like, World War One, World War Two, And the queen that was talking to Winston Churchill in that show right after World War Two is over is the same queen that we have today. And oh, I just, I don't know. Yeah. It's just like, it, you just feel this kind of like, you feel more historically connected because it doesn't seem as far away as if there had been, like, three or four monarchs since then, you know? 
Yes, and I and I love their dynamic within the show where they complement each other so well. They they kind of they butt heads at times, and he's maybe a little or more than a little patronizing toward her at times. But then at the same time, because he is such a staunch monarchist, he respects her position. And as she grows in confidence, we see her chastise as a woman in her twenties, chastising Winston Churchill post World War II. And right. and he submits like he basically yeah. he he bows to her authority and even like admits that she's right about some of the things that she's calling him out on and as that yeah. I mean that, that dynamic almost gives me chills. It's almost again it's like a perfect a perfect place perfect time thing. Like who better to learn to stand up for yourself against than Winston Churchill? <laughs> and then and then you know like that's the first prime minister she has to deal with and then. As you go through the show, every other prime minister, she's like dealing with all of them way more effectively because in season one, like her, she's just thrown into the fire right away. Oh, the prime minister you have to deal with as a 20 whatever year old brand new monarch is Winston Churchill, hero of World War Two. Yeah, right. And he goes from, you know, trying to push things over on her to being really, really proud of her, even if right. they disagree on some things. And no, I, yeah. that dynamic was, was beautifully done. And that's something the show kind of highlighted for me in general is just my whole look at the current monarchy. I, so it is mostly a token thing. So the whole idea is that Britain's constitutional monarchy is officially, you know, a monarchy and that parliament and the prime minister ask the monarch's permission to form a government in the monarch's name. And that's still a ceremony that they still do to this day. And I kind of already knew that. And I thought it was more of a token thing than it kind of is. Like there is more maybe authority to the monarchy than I thought, even if there isn't. It's complicated and you kind of have to watch the show to kind of get your head around it. Doesn't the doesn't the monarch technically have the power to like dissolve parliament and basically like say any, all right, you guys are just done. You guys are being too ridiculous. Basically hit, hit reset kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Because I know that there were, there were a lot of people when Brexit was like looking like it was going to be very, very disastrous. There were people that were like, Hey, maybe, maybe the queen should like step in right now. Right. And just say, you know what parliament, we're not doing that. It's, it's (laughs) almost like, so Again, I hate bringing up the 45th president of the United States, but the the, the breaking oh. of norms and the idea—it's high, high, <laughs> right. like so so much was just established norms and tradition, and then Trump comes in and is like, "Yeah, I'm not doing those things," and it's like, "Oh shoot, we should have made all these things laws." Instead, they were just traditions, and oh crap, if you get someone in a position who doesn't care about tradition, we're in trouble. And then so the same thing with the British monarchy. It's like, yeah, a lot of this stuff legally, she has a lot more authority then in effect because they tradition kind of dictates that they do things a certain way and remain biased and let the government kind of just do its own thing but it wouldn't have to be that way if she wanted to push that a little more she probably could now parliament might push back and codify some of these things but it's uh i don't know it's it, interesting and just the fact that she actually has a daily role and gets all the briefings and her opinion does matter and even if they just kind of trust the parliament to take care of things and try to stay above party politics, there's just way more to it on a day-to-day, admitted, not necessarily administrative, but advisory role and signing off on things role that I wouldn't have thought about before I watched the show. Which, 
we'll get into this in a later episode, but that's like a thing that I think is a huge problem that you have this person who has an enormous amount of power, not by virtue of their experience or their education or anything that they've done or being elected, but just they were born in the right family and now they have all this power. No, right. right. And again, that, and it's yeah. like, and it's, it's worked out all right under Elizabeth. She seems pretty cool, but you know, what's interesting though, too, is the, here's, here's a, here's a little bit of a devil's African ar- argument because obviously I'm, I'm a huge egalitarian. I think people are equal. I think it's silly that you have to bow to a person just because of the position they were born into. I agree that all that is silly. Now at the same time, the fact that they are groomed from birth for this specific role and part of that grooming includes deference to the established parliament and being above it. So instead of being like brainwashed to the right or brainwashed to the left by your family, you're almost brainwashed to be a centrist And then versus a politician who, yes, earns their own way up and comes from nothing is going to come and bring their own ambitions and bias to a way that could in theory be more dangerous than a monarch who is prepared from birth to be impartial. Well, until they decide that they don't care about any of that. I, I, no, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> but at the same time, like I said, you could, you could just easily have a ambitious person take advantage of the current system the way things currently are. I mean, Boris Johnson is, you know, probably not the best guy. Of course, he's... I mean, yeah. at the time of recording, could matter for him because uh, I don't know if he'll still be the PM in... Uh, uh, a year, but <laughs> yeah. Again, they kind of just keep bouncing back and forth. They kind of, as Elizabeth's getting ready for her coronation, they cut back to her father's coronation and just all those kinds of things. Oh, and it, that was one of the things where she was like, she was pretty progressive in like bringing the royal family into the modern eras when she she wanted the coronation and everything to be televised. Or specifically, Prince Philip was with a will. She was on board too, but Prince Philip was like the one that was like insisting. Oh, like, that's like, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was it was the first time ever that that was televised, and it was like there were opponents of it that were like, "No, we sh- it like degrades the the seriousness of what's going to happen." Like, no, like it's the modern times. Like, we need the people to connect with us as people if we're going to be successful monarchs. So that and that was you know huge, like actually showing the coronation to anyone who wanted to watch versus. At any other coronation previous to that, like you had to be there to see it. Yeah. And I like the idea because we still always deal with it with new technology the idea that the existing way of things is correct and that bringing new technology into something that we see as somewhat sacred is somehow insulting to that sacred thing or sacrilegious or whatever. Oh, yeah. You see it maybe a, a less serious example, but in something like baseball where they, you know, you have all the pushback from. People who say, well, we don't need instant replay. Mm. We don't need, you know, the the cameras and the recordings. Like, you know, the umpire, like, is their call is sacred. And so you're kind of denigrating that by if you're second guessing every time, like, if, if the ump calls you out, you're out kind of thing. Right, right. The, yeah, it's that's that's just part of the sport is the yeah. fallibility of a human official and deal with it it's and yeah it's yeah somehow sacrilegious to bring new technology I, into the sacred I, I don't, thing i don't agree with that I'm no right that there right are people who say that because like right. i i'm thinking like no if you make like get rid of human refs and umps and make them all robots who are 100 percent infallible and can see at you know eighty thousand frames per second or whatever and can tell like you know exactly when things are happening or obviously we're, we're not to ai umps or reveries yet but 
eventually we probably will be. And I think that there are people who are probably would be upset about that. But like, how, how do you make a sport more fair? Right. Well, and again, so this is, so I'm, I'm a, I'm less of a baseball fan, I'm more of a football fan. I saw a headline the other day talking about Patrick Mahomes was saying like, why don't we put microchips in the footballs to help officiating? And I 100% agree. It's like, if you can basically have, you can build into the fields, you know, these certain detectors and this way, oh, is the football out of bounds or not? Check the computer. The computer says it right. was out of bounds. Yeah. Or oh, you don't have yeah. to bring the chains out anymore because we know to within three thousandths of an inch, right? You know right. where the ball was when the guy's knee was down, right? Or or spotting it, and it was the correct spot because the yeah, right? Because the little field glowed in the spot where the ball should be spotted because exactly because yeah. computers are better at enforcing little rules like that than humans, yes. and why not have the be done correctly? And what are we talking about? <laughs> 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 oh yeah tell televising the coronation <laughs> we're doing good we're doing good uh i want to talk about so see in season sorry in episode 10 we get into the suez crisis of 1956 this is kind of interesting a little more again the whole kind of 20th century definitely saw a big drop in british power in the world they enter the 20th century as one of the greatest powers in world history if not the greatest power in world history and by the end of the 20th century they are greatly diminished in both the size of their realm and the authority and influence that they have in the world yeah. obviously still a, a major player on the world stage but far far less so than when they entered the 20th century so with the suez crisis is that you said that is season one or is that season two um it might get into it more in season two but it, it, it comes up at the end of season one Okay. In episode ten, there with the new prime minister, so I was kind of kind of confused uh, why they were still trying to even flex control over this. So the Suez Canal was built in the eighteen uh, fifties and eighteen sixties, and was officially owned by well, first under the authority of the Ottoman Empire, and then later, at least nominally, under the control of Egypt. But the issue was, even though the canal was technically Egyptian property, the company that operated the you know trade and everything through it was a british company exactly europe yep. was a european british and french company so it's like the egyptians own the canal but the europeans run the shipping through it and so then in 1956 the president of egypt basically nat tried to nationalize the company that was running stuff through it basically says like no the company's egyptian too now and so yeah. you end up with uh fight between Europe and Egypt over this. And then the show deals with that kind of just from the prime minister's uh, point of view. That was one thing that I, I thought was interesting. Actually, so real quick, Johnny Harris has a great YouTube video about the history of the Suez Canal and all of the geopolitics involved in it. He talks about how apparently there was a there was a plan at one point in time that the U.S. had where they were going to use nuclear weapons to basically detonate like a line of nuclear weapons to make a new Suez Canal. What? Like, in the Sinai Peninsula. Yeah, basically just open. It's just open desert. Like, there's nothing there. Huh. But the U.S. was like, this canal is so important. We can't have, you know, like, one is none. We need at least one more. How are we going to do it? Well, let's just blow giant nuclear craters in the ground. But, yeah, if... Uh, With this 1950s thinking, I hope, and not, like... Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a... Uh, I don't know if it was the 50s exactly, but, yeah, this wasn't, like, last year or anything. Right. Um, but it was... 
yeah, it's it's a really good video. It's super interesting, and it uh, kind of uncovers a lot of the things that I didn't know about, you know, who controls it, how it works, and all that. But one of the things in the show that was I really liked was the interactions between it's not the ambassador, right? It is the prime minister that goes to Egypt to try and smooth things over. I think so. But again, it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. And he's talking to, they have some sort of like dinner where they invite the, I'm just going to say leader of Egypt because I don't know the title. Is it the, it's not the president that he got, he's in a military uniform. He might be president, but yeah. Anyways, the guy shows up in a military uniform, but it's like a, it's a black tie event. And he's like, kind of butthurt that no one told him and mm, because the, that's right. the brits all just being you know pompous douchebags assumed oh well if if we invite him to this then he should know what the dress code is kind of thing they just you know assumed that he would know what the dress code was without saying anything so he shows up in a military uniform everyone else is in tuxedos and the prime minister like trying to smooth things over inadvertently makes it worse because he says oh well you know if i had as many if i had decorations and medals like you i would have worn a uniform too like i think it looks really good and the president says you're a war hero you do have decorations i know your history like i know that you are a decorated veteran and so like you're full of shit right now saying Uh, that to me which i thought was kind of a yeah calling him on it cool interaction no it's interesting too like we forget too just with the suez canal in general we forget and you know in the internet age here and with you know planes that can drones that can do everything that no a lot of stuff still has to get moved by ground and sea and we saw that actually yeah recently in the news yeah the suez canal got blocked just a couple months ago uh from when we're recording here and caused all kinds of uh chaos and economic uh damages and i was looking here too this is crazy so when they built the suez canal in the 1800s, it reduced the trip to the Arabian Sea. So, like, say you're headed from London to the Arabian Sea. It cut that trip down by 5,500 miles. Yeah. It took 10 days off the trip. So, if you're talking about moving right. goods around the world and you can save 10 days, I mean, that's huge, yeah. huge. And like yeah. you said, having just one little spot then that connects uh, those parts of the world makes that little connection point very, very important yeah and of course europe has a history of not wanting to give those that control to the areas that live or the people that live in those areas and want to just keep it themselves it's similar to like yeah. down in uh panama and uh on our in our hemisphere and uh, uh to that point i think i'm i'm pretty sure that, go go watch the johnny harris video okay he he know he you know explains way more about it than than we will be able to right now but i think that the u.s like I don't think they control it outright, but they do have like at least a pretty strong agreement with whoever does control it because of naval activity. They want navy oh, ships to right, be able to go right. through it, you know, basically uninhibited. But there was in that same video, there's a he talks about this a war that happened and the canal ended up being blocked and there were ships that were stuck in the canal for like seven years. Years? Yeah. And like the crews were just like hanging out like having a good time like there's they don't have anything to do and i have anywhere to go we live here now <laughs> yeah so we're just like we're just hanging out on our ship it's stuck in the canal <laughs> that's crazy uh yeah so so sorry if that was kind of all over the place uh again we just kind of wanted to have a conversation about the the crown if you haven't watched it do do go watch it it, it is really really good we want to kind of do just like an episode like this for each season of the crown that's out so far we're going to 
try and see if we can talk to some others that might have different uh, opinions or perspectives, actually, is the main thing I'm looking for than us. And then again, I think we mentioned before, we are going to roll into the TV show Vikings after we're done talking about The Crown, and we will get into a little more detail. <laughs> well, I think, I think we plan on doing two episodes per season of Vikings <laughs> versus one for The Crown here. So next time, we will be discussing season two of The Crown. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later. See ya. See ya.